And as we now come to Your Word, O Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we come as hungry servants, hungry beggars, asking that You would please, O God, feed us, nourish us with the Word of Christ. Please, God, show us the glory of Christ as we study Your Word. Please, God, we ask that You would humble us Give us a contrite spirit. Grant us repentance where we need to repent. Grant us greater faith. Grant us, O Lord, endurance until the end. We pray, O Lord, that Your Word would accomplish Your work in us. That it would equip us for every good work. We remember that Your Word is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Breathed by the Spirit. And that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Please, O God, please accomplish these purposes in us as we study Your Word. And please, O God, accomplish these purposes also in our children. Our children are a gift from You. You have given them to us to steward. And we take that responsibility seriously. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to make disciples of our children. We pray that as the Gospel is preached, as Your Word is preached, that seeds of faith would be sprinkled on their hearts that would bear fruit in Your time, O Lord. We devote this time to You, to the glory of Christ. And we ask, O Lord, show us our need for Christ and show us Christ's glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 13. We'll be looking at John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35 today. I thought we might be able to wrap up this this, podcast chapter, but no, not today. Uh, Next week, we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, We'll be looking at John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35 today. This passage is all about how we show the world that we are Christians. And that's our purpose in life. That's who we are. At the forefront of our identity, that is who we are. We are in Christ. We are Christians before we are Americans, before we are anything. We are in Christ. How should we show the world that we are Christians? That's the question that Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer asked at the beginning of a famous essay that he wrote several years ago titled The Mark of the Christian. And Schaeffer would go on to note that over the course of the last 2,000 years, through Christian history, people have used all kinds of various symbols to show the world that they were Christians. Uh, Christians in the first century, for example, you may know that they would use their foot to sweep from right to left in the sand, drawing a line, while the person that they were conversing with would do the same thing, and together it would make a little fish in the sand. Kind of like the Christian fish symbols that you used to see on cars, not so much anymore, uh, for better or for worse. But Schaefer noted that there are many other symbols that Christians uh, have used to tell the world that they are Christians, including haircuts, of all things. Uh, I'm, I'm out of luck there, uh, unless everybody were to shave their head, right? But then Schaefer very quickly casts all of these signs and all of these symbols that people have used throughout the ages to, to show the world that they're Christians. He casts them all aside and he writes this. He says, quote, But there is a much better sign, a universal mark that is to last through all the ages till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus made clear what was to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian until his return. End quote. The mark that Schaefer was referring to there is love. It's love, agape love. And the passage that he was referring to is the passage that we actually find ourselves in today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. 
In the previous uh, passage that we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus uh, has just revealed to His disciples that one of them was about to betray Him. And we saw the response of the disciples was to be just completely confused. They were perplexed. They had no idea who it could possibly be among them. But Peter figured that John would know, and so Peter turns to John and asks him who it is. Who's going to betray the Lord Jesus? Well, John doesn't have any idea who it is either, but he's seated at Jesus' right hand, and so he kind of leans back and and turns his head and, and asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus told him that it would be the one uh, who he gave a morsel of bread to that had been dipped in wine, and he proceeded to give Judas Iscariot that morsel that had been dipped in wine, identifying Judas as the one who would betray him. Now, Judas Iscariot, we have to realize he had a very long history of giving his ear to the devil. Uh, and entertaining suggestions of the devil. And upon taking this morsel of bread and eating it, he now became the property of the devil, and he was possessed by the devil. And Jesus said to him at that moment, what you do, do quickly. And as Judas left, John tells us that as he did, as he left their presence, it was night. Now, it was literally night. The, the sun was down, but the sun had also set on Judas's soul. The light that he had been exposed to for so many years had now been removed from his heart as well as his rejection of Christ was sealed. Judas's story reminds us of just how incredibly destructive and stupid sin is. And how it causes us to do so many foolish things. But with Judas now out of the way, the fellowship that Jesus has with the disciples has been purified. Funny how that works, isn't it? It's been purified. The, the evil presence has been removed from among them. So Jesus will now have a lot of very important things to say to the disciples. Things that a goat, like Judas Iscariot, should not and, and could not understand and he, that he shouldn't be privy to personally, in my opinion. But this is where he will instruct the disciples to love one another. And that's the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that the love that Jesus has for His people should be the standard of love that we exercise toward our fellow Christians. So we have to understand that this passage that we come to today is a passage that's really all about purpose. It starts with Jesus' purpose, the Father's purpose, and it moves to our purpose and how we accomplish that purpose. But with Judas gone, with Judas no longer at the table of the Last Supper, Jesus now speaks very forthrightly about what is happening, about what is about to happen. So let's look at verses 31 and 32. We read, therefore, when he, that's talking about Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Jesus' purpose in his condescension, in his leaving His throne in heaven, taking on flesh and becoming fully man and fully God. His purpose in doing this was to glorify God. That's exactly why He did everything that He did. Now the Greek word for glorify is doxadzo, which is where we get the word doxology from. Sometimes we sing doxology. We will sing it today after our baptism. We always sing it after a baptism. But part of what this word means is to reveal. That's part of what this word means. And of course, we know that that's what Jesus does. He reveals. Specifically, He reveals God in a way that nothing else and nobody else does. Now that's what we know, you know who God is because we see Jesus exemplifying these 
characteristics and qualities and attributes of God in a way that words just can't express. For example, it's one thing to say that God is all-powerful and, and to know that intellectually and to, to believe it in our hearts, but it's quite another thing to read about Jesus commanding the wind and the waves to be silent and for them to just go instantly still as if they were just a sheet of glass. That's the all-powerfulness of God. It's one thing to know and believe that God is all-wise. But it's quite another thing to see Him respond to a Pharisee who asks Him a question that's designed to trip Him up and ensnare Him and for Jesus to turn that around in less than a sentence and trip and, and ensnare the Pharisee with His own words. It's one thing to know and believe that God loves His people with an everlasting love as He says to His people through the prophet Jeremiah. But it's quite another thing to see Jesus who lived a perfect, sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father willingly be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. Dying a death that was reserved only for the vilest of sinners. But the word glory can also mean things like to extol, or to magnify, or to make renowned, or to honor. Jesus, now that He's free to speak openly because the false disciple has left, He's only left with His true disciples, He's free from the, the presence of Judas that could only pollute their fellowship. Jesus now begins this lengthy discourse that's going to last a, a couple chapters by noting that the time had come for the Son of Man to be glorified and for God the Father to be glorified in Him. In other words, this would be the time when the nature of God, the attributes of God, would be most fully and most clearly revealed at the cross. Now, we've already touched on this in previous studies of this book. Back in chapter 12, verse 23, we saw that Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But it's not just the hour now. Now it's now. Uh, but then we read in verse 28, back in uh, chapter 12, Jesus said, Father, glorify Your name. And John tells us that the Father, this is one of those instances where the Father spoke audibly from the heavens, uh, John tells us, Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That again that the Father is saying, is, is referring to there, is where we find ourselves in this text now. Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. The final events that would lead Jesus to the cross have now been set in motion. This is the home stretch as Judas has gone to collect his money and to bring the Roman guard back with him to arrest Jesus. And yet, Jesus speaks very positively about this moment. Even though He knows what's going on and what's going to happen, He speaks very positively about it. He's not overwhelmed with fear. He's filled with joy. It was His joy to reveal and to magnify the splendor of God to the disciples and to the world in this way. So how is Jesus glorified in and by His death on the cross? There are a lot of ways. You could probably write a whole book or books on, on that, but one way that He is glorified by the cross is He's glorified in the sense that His crucifixion magnified His honor because it is the defining, the central moment in all of history. Not just in His earthly ministry, but in all of human history. Think about that for a second. Compared to the cross, what greater, more significant event has ever ever happened. What's been more significant than the cross? 
When we think about significant events that have happened in the history of mankind, I mean, you could probably name a million things. The list for significant things that have happened in the history of humanity could be longer than than we could read in an entire year. The average person, if you were to go uh, someplace, go to the mall and ask the average person to name a significant event in the history of humanity, they might say something like, um, landing on the moon. Was landing on the moon significant? Oh, yeah, that was, that was great. What about the Industrial Revolution? Somebody might say that, the Industrial Revolution, sure. How about the discovery of North America by European settlers? Sure. Uh, somebody might say the discovery of electricity, or the invention of the telephone, or, or the invention of the wheel. Or how about learning to make fire? These things are all really, really significant. These are important events, no question about it. But they are absolutely nothing. They are absolutely insignificant compared to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Could humanity be saved from the flames of eternal hell without the moon landing? Yes, of course. What about without the Industrial Revolution? Sure. What about without the discovery of North America, without the discovery of electricity, without the invention of the telephone or the wheel, or learning how to effectively and efficiently make fire, without any of these things? Yes. But could sinners, could even the vilest of sinners, be reconciled to God and be saved from the wrath of God and the flames of eternal hell without the cross. No. That is the one event that we cannot do without. We could not accomplish reconciliation with God. We could not be saved from the flames of hell in a million years without the cross. At the cross, sinners who would humbly turn from their sin and believe in Jesus were reconciled to God. Their sin was atoned for once and for all. And they came away better for it. Their lives were transformed. Transformed sinners who believed in Jesus would be the ones who would invent hospitals. They would be the ones who would be devoted to furthering science as a means of further understanding God by further understanding God's creation. They enacted laws based on God's perfect law. Laws that changed the way society treated women and the poor. Christians are responsible for developing models of institutional education. They wanted their children to be able to read in order that their children would be able to access God's holy written Word. One person on a website who responded to a question about how Christianity has improved the world said it perfectly. They, they wrote this. They said, quote, The positive cultural influence of the Christian church is too vast to enumerate in detail in less than a series of books. End quote. This is absolutely and verifiably true. And it's all because of the cross. The cross is the single greatest event in all of history. And nothing, nothing is even a close second place. It's second place is a long ways away. The cross is the single greatest event in history. It's the central moment in all of history because it changed the trajectory of the world's history. It's the one event that God's faithful have always looked toward. The saints of the Old Testament looked forward to it just like we look back to it. This is the first way, perhaps the greatest way, that Christ is glorified by the cross. Christ is also glorified on the cross in that He did what Adam didn't do. He remained faithfully obedient to the will of God until the end and was thus qualified to present Himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin on behalf of all who believe in Him. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else is qualified. Everybody else is blemished by sin. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus didn't. Until the end, 
until his death, he remained faithfully obedient to the Father's will every nanosecond of his life. Only Jesus, the last Adam, lived a perfectly sinless life. Matthew, Matthew Henry notes in his commentary, quote, Christ had been glorified in many miracles He had wrought, and yet He speaks of His being glorified now in His sufferings as if that were more than all His other glories in His humble state. End quote. But Jesus isn't the only one that's glorified on Calvary. It's, it's not only Jesus who's glorified. Jesus says that the Father is as well. How is the Father glorified at the cross because the cross displays God's perfect holy righteous wrath against sin there is maybe no other place where the wrath of God against sin is made so evident so plain so clear where it is demonstrated and revealed so vividly as it is on Calvary the cross glorifies God's wrath. It glorifies God's mercy, His justice, His power, His wisdom, His sovereignty, and His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Think about that for a minute. God made a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that He would send a Redeemer. And within a chapter, everything's already starting to fall apart. Cain murders Abel. And, and, and you, have, you have cities of godless people being formed where, where they're singing songs. The first song that's sung in the Bible is about murder. In chapter 4 of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, this is what we see. It, it looks like things are falling apart. It looks like there are so few who are faithful. We see one example after another of Israel's unfaithfulness. But the cross demonstrates that God is faithful to His promise that He made back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the Father is glorified in that, in the fact that He was faithful. The Father is perhaps most glorified by the cross in that it is a beautiful, wonderful, striking display of His love. His love gives us the answer to the question, why? Why was the cross necessary? It was necessary only, only because of God's love. Nothing else, nothing else made the cross necessary. God would have been perfectly just and justified in never sending a Redeemer to ransom or redeem anybody. He would have been perfectly justified in sending all of humanity to hell. The cross displays God's wrath against sin, but God's wrath against sin does not make the cross necessary. It only makes the cross necessary if, if God loves. If He loves a people and therefore desires to redeem a people. And thus the Father is glorified in the way that His love is revealed on Calvary where He would spare us, where He would spare His people, all who believed in Jesus from His wrath by pouring out His wrath against our sin upon His own Son in our place. There is no other place on earth, in the Scriptures, in our wildest imaginations where the wrath of God is made so evident, but there's also no other place where the love of God for His people is made so evident. It is a love that has no earthly parallel. There is nothing that compares to it. Friends, this passage is all about purpose. We're talking about Jesus' purpose on the cross here. The purpose for the Son taking on flesh and becoming a man and dying a sinner's death was the glory of God. The purpose for the Father Sending the Son to ransom and redeem a people was the glory of God. And what we need to understand is that if we are brought into fellowship, into communion with the triune God, the glory of God becomes our purpose as well. 
How would those who would be redeemed by Christ fulfill this purpose? How would those who believe in Him glorify God? That's the issue that Jesus addresses now before leaving His disciples in a couple chapters. So let's look at verses 33-35. to Jesus continues saying, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another. It is wonderful for us to think about and meditate on and contemplate the glory of God. And it is wonderful to read about and sing about uh, His incredible love for us. But the best way to understand God's love is to take it beyond simple intellect, simple contemplation or, or meditation, and to actually imitate that love. And so Jesus who's still focused on the love that he has for his own. Remember, that's how chapter 13 started. It's the theme of this chapter. So now Jesus addresses his disciples just ever so tenderly. Little children, he says. That's not condescending. That's tender. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Little children. This is just such a loving and tender and gentle and fatherly title, isn't it? Fatherly title to his kids to use. If a parent is is going away for a season from their children, their final address, the final words that they would speak to their children would be heartfelt, would be tender, would be affectionate, wouldn't they? And so that's how Jesus is addressing the disciples as well. Now something worth noting, something very interesting worth noting, is that John, the, the disciple, who would become John the Apostle obviously, would use this phrase, little children, several times in his first epistle where he's addressing the audience that he was writing to who had uh, some Gnostic teachers go out from among them. And, and that makes it, when you consider how many times he uses these words, little children, this title, when you consider how often he uses it, it makes it very clear to us that those words, little children, stuck with him and were very dear to him for the rest of his life. In in one sense, in one very real sense, as he used these words toward young believers, he was imitating Christ. The way that Christ addressed them here. John uses this this title toward his audience seven times in his first epistle. Listen to, to the times he uses it. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, little children, Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than than He who is in the world." And finally, the last one of the book. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now notice, if you will, that almost every time he uses this title, little children, toward his audience, it's connected to a very specific and a very important practical instruction. And it's no different here in the Gospel of John as Jesus uses this title in reference to the disciples. This, this, uh, this address by Jesus begins with some difficult and unexpected news as far as the disciples were concerned. That Jesus was going somewhere that they cannot come. They followed Him for three years. But it ends here. But He takes the occasion of His upcoming departure to instruct them, indeed to give them what He refers to as a new commandment. A new commandment. These men, the disciples who were, who were true disciples, 
had experienced the tender, loving fellowship of Jesus for three years. But Jesus wasn't going to physically be there to love them that way, to demonstrate that love toward them any longer. How were they ever going to experience that close, humble, intimate, self-denying, self-sacrificing love with Jesus gone? And how would the people who would be converted to Christianity through the ministry of the apostles after Jesus is gone, how would they ever experience the love of Jesus? And the answer is, by following the new commandment that Jesus gives them here. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another also. Now the question that gets raised here is, okay, I'm waiting. Where's the new commandment? Right? After all, the Old Testament instructs us that we must love our neighbors, right? We read this in Mark, where uh, in chapter uh, 12, verses 28 to 31, uh, somebody tries to, to ask him a question uh, to maybe kind of trip him up. We read this, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the first answer that Jesus gave to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a summarization of the first table of the Ten Commandments. The second answer that He gives to love our neighbors as we love ourselves is a summarization of the second table of the Second Commandments. And so Jesus clearly understood that there was an obligation to love in the Old Testament. God's people have always known that God requires love of neighbor from them. So how is this commandment new? Or in what sense might we say that this commandment is a new commandment? J.C. Ryle explains it this way. He writes, quote, It's called a new commandment, not because it had never been given before, but because it was to be more honored, to occupy a higher position, to be backed by a higher example than it had ever been before. Above all, it was to be the test of Christianity before the world. End quote. So you might realize there are several answers within this one answer. The first way that it's a new commandment is that there's a new standard for what it looks like to love. Notice the fine print in what Jesus says in this, in this, uh, in this uh, passage. He says, even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. There's the standard. Even as I have loved you. Oh man. How low the standard would be if Jesus had just left that clause out if he had only just said a new commandment i give you that you love one another and just left it at that just stopped right there we could have said no problem i got this no problem anybody can do that but no he says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another even as i have loved you you are to love each other the same way that i have loved you is what jesus is saying that is a tall order. Think of it this way. It, say, say you're in a high jump competition, right? Let's say you jump six feet off the ground, which is pretty good. Um, the world record is just over eight feet. Uh, but a six feet, if you ask me, six feet is incredible. Uh, it's attain, uh, attainable, at least, and a very impressive goal. But let's say that you, you, know, you hit six feet, and your competition, somebody you're competing against, jumps six feet one inch. Now you have a new goal. The goal is kind of the same before, but there's a new standard, a new measure that's been set if you're going to win. And just like that's the new standard for jumping, Jesus sets a new standard for loving. But notice that J.C. Ryle also noted that this love, quote, was to be the test of Christianity before the world. End quote. That's new. 
That, this is new. And it's exactly what Jesus meant when He said, by this all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. It had never been the way that the world would know that the Israelites were from Israel. So love now has a new purpose. It's the mark of the Christian that is designed to be specifically noticed, specifically identified by the world. But let's not miss that the object of this love is slightly different. Jesus doesn't say, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love your neighbor. That's not what he says. And that's not to say that loving our neighbors isn't important. Of course it is. But that's not what speaks to the world. At least not as loudly as the love that we are to exercise toward one another. It's the love that the disciples, that followers of Jesus, that Christians have for one another that speaks to the world and which identifies them as His disciples. See, for the Israelites, practicing love for neighbor meant practicing love for fellow Jews, fellow Israelites. But at the cross, Jesus opened the gates of salvation to the Gentile nations as well. So this commandment for His disciples to love one another would involve exercising love toward anyone else and everyone else who has been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with the same love that Christ loves us with. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, nationality, or anything else that we might use to divide people. What a difficult commandment this is. If only Jesus had left that one clause out, it would be so easy. But no, it's in there. Which makes this a very, very difficult commandment for us to even think about achieving. If you want to compare this to a high jump, I mean, it may, be, you know, may as well be likened to, to having your opponent jump over the moon. Uh, you can jump, but you can't jump like that no matter how hard you try. That's how great the love of Jesus is. Nothing compares to it. Nothing measures up to it. Nothing comes even close to being parallel to Jesus' love for us. God is love by the essence of His being. So how can we even come close to loving as He loved? Who would be so crazy to even attempt such a thing? And it's true. On our own, we can't measure up. We won't even come close. So, so why even try, somebody might ask. And the answer is because A, Jesus has commanded it, and that should be a good enough reason, right? And secondly, because we have a new power within us. Jesus did command it. He said in chapter 14, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. Now, there are many people in the church today who would tell us that, you know, telling Christians that there's an obligation to, to obey Jesus is a form of legalism. But obedience to God is anything but legalism. Obedience to God is, is, is not legalism. Those two things aren't even close to being the same. Obedience is not legalism. So, so why even try to love this way? Because we love Jesus. And if we love Him, we strive to obey Him. There's a story that I came across this past week as I was uh, researching for this, uh, for this sermon. It's a pastor who, uh, the story is of a pastor who asked his Sunday school classroom, what do you do with the commandments God gives us? And one lady raised her hand and responded by saying, I underline them in blue. And you know, if, if that's what you do with the commandments of God uh, to make them easier for you to find, you know, more power to you, but then what do you do with it? What do you do with it once you find that blue underline so you found one of the commandments of God? What do you do with it then? They are not just given to us for informational purposes. 
They're not just given to us as practical suggestions, as if we can just take it or leave it if we don't like it, or if we do like it, whatever we feel comfortable or uncomfortable with. No, these commandments are given to us in order that we may walk in them. If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. But just as important, Jesus will say in the next chapter, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Now it's true that on our own, by our own strength, by our own willpower, we can't follow any of God's commandments. But God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, enables us to do what is not possible in the flesh, including loving one another as Jesus has loved us. Our love for one another may not measure up in size to the greatness of Christ's love for His disciples just prior to this. But let's think about the context here. Jesus just demonstrated His love how? By washing their feet. By serving them in the most humble way possible. So the question is, can we love each other with a humble, selfless, self-denying, sacrificial love? by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us? The answer is yes. Yes, we can. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. Jesus certainly doesn't say, hey guys, I've got an easy commandment for you. He doesn't say that it's going to be easy. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's easy to love people, but sometimes it's not. Some people are very easy to love in this manner. Some people, actually, they're so nice and so gentle and so humble themselves, they almost make us want to be humble and sacrificial and willing to deny ourselves in the way that we love them and serve them. But some people are more difficult to love than others, even in the church. And that is when our willingness to submit, our willingness to obey, to love those who have been, have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, that's when our willingness to submit to His commandments is really put to the test. When somebody is difficult to love. And here's where it really becomes difficult. When you're striving to love somebody with this kind of love, and you are completely convinced that they aren't even trying to love you back the same way. Ever experienced that? Stick around long enough, you will. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that makes it very difficult. But what do you do then? What do you do when you're striving to love somebody that way and you're convinced that they're not trying to love you back the same way? You keep striving to love them that way. The way that Jesus loves His own. Because you love Jesus. And God is glorified in your obedience, in your submission, especially when it's difficult. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus will say in chapter 15, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's where Jesus' love is ultimately most clearly seen. Now, now you will probably never have a chance to jump in front of a flying bullet for a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, if they get sick, if, uh, if they catch a disease that's terminal, you, you, can't, you can't take their place. But the point is that the Christian life involves continual self-denial. It involves continual Constant self-denial. Dying to self. Laying aside our pride. Laying aside any privilege we might have. Laying aside any preferences for how things ought to be that we might have. And doing this out of love for one another. You might not be able to die for a brother and sister in Christ today. Probably won't be able to. But can you take five minutes to pray for them? To pray with them? even though you might have a million other things to do after service? 
Can you serve them in some way, shape, form, in a humble, self-sacrificial manner? Here's Paul's instruction to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, here's the tough part, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That is totally opposite of the way of the flesh. The flesh will never want to do that. But Paul says this is what you need to do. That's the way you need to operate toward one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Can you do that in the power of the flesh? Nope. You need the Holy Spirit to be working in you to have that kind of attitude, that kind of love. And of course, that's the kind of love that Paul would go on to show that Jesus exercised perfectly. That's the kind of love that drove Him to take on flesh. That's the kind of love that drove Him to to live a sinless life which would be characterized by sorrow and rejection. And that's the kind of love that would drive Him to die the death that His people deserved to die in their stead. The go-to passage whenever we're talking about Christian love. You probably have heard it a hundred times. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes there, here's the definition of Christian love. The love that Jesus is instructing us to have toward one another. Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, which will happen in the context of the church. You need to forgive when it happens, does not take an account, uh, take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, it doesn't rejoice that somebody's in sin, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What's interesting to note is that while this passage is probably most commonly read at wedding ceremonies, that's probably where you guys have heard it read before, that's where it's almost always read, it's not talking about romantic love. It's not talking about a love that's exclusive between spouses. It's talking about agape love. It's talking about Christian love. It's the type of love that Christians are specifically instructed to exercise toward one another. Now, of course, that kind of love is a, is a beautiful thing, even if it's uh, practiced in the context of marriage by two Christian spouses. But its primary application is toward Christians in general, in the way that they act toward one another. And when we put this kind of love into practice toward one another, Jesus says the world will be able to identify us as disciples of Jesus. Because it's not a worldly love. It's not a natural love. It's it's literally supernatural. You want to see something supernatural? You should be able to go into a church and see the love that Christians have toward each other. There's your supernatural. And when the world notices, Jesus is glorified by that. Think of all the things that Jesus could have said would identify His disciples as disciples. He could have said a million things, right? He could have said, by this all men will know that you're My disciples if you know the Scriptures really well. He didn't say that though. He could have said, by this all men will know that you're My disciples if you feed and clothe the poor. But He didn't. He could have said, by this all men will know that you're My disciples if you wear your Sunday best to church but he didn't. It's, and it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong with any of these things. In fact, they can all be good things. The question is your motivation. But it's not these things. It's love. It's love for one another, motivated and measured by the love of Jesus that he has for his own that should characterize every single one of our lives. Listen, friends, Jesus wants us to understand that this is a priority. That the world should be able to identify us 
as His disciples. That should be a priority for us both individually and collectively. Francis Schaeffer notes this in his essay, The Mark of the Christian. If you obey, he says, you will wear the badge that Christ gave. But since this is a command, it can be violated. The point While it is possible to be a Christian without showing the mark, if we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must show the mark. End quote. That is, we must love one another as Christ has loved us. The love that Jesus has for His people is the standard of love that we are commanded to exercise toward our brethren, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. And how will that be accomplished in the context of the church? How will the world see the love of Jesus even though He's no longer physically present? By seeing the way that we love one another. As the old song goes, they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. Lord, as we consider this commandment, the new commandment that Jesus gave His disciples on the night in which He was betrayed, we recognize that it is impossible in our own strength to measure up. And that it's something that we cannot do. And Father, we pray that as we realize this, we would be humbled by that realization. And that by the power of the Spirit working within us, that we would strive to love one another this way. Teach us, O Lord, to be humble. Teach us to be self-sacrificial toward one another. Teach us to love one another the way that Jesus has loved us, unworthy as we are and unworthy as others may seem to us. O Lord, teach us to do this for the glory of Christ and that the world may know that we are His disciples. May we walk as He walked. May we live as He lived. May we love as He loved for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen.